Let's pray and we'll get started, shall we? All right. Father, I thank you so much for the men in this room. Thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to sit in front of your word. Lord, what a blessing to see so many men be here this morning and be eager to have their Bibles open and be looking at your word, eager to talk to one another and hear about how things are going in one another's homes. I praise you for that. Lord, I praise you for your design. Your design is a good design that we would be used by you to bring about growth in one another. I pray that that would happen this morning. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity we have to examine truth from Proverbs related to our heart. Pray for each one of these men. I pray for myself and I pray for Ben that we would be men who are ready to receive your word and you would assist your word, you would attend to us as your word is spoken so we could hear it well. So I praise you that we are here. I pray for every man that you would make us all awake and alert as you would have us be so that we could engage with your word well. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. One of the things I want to just put in front of you guys is if you are newer to Grace Bible Church, and as I'm looking around, I don't see a lot of guys who are, but I want you to know that if you are newer to Grace and you have been at Grace for just a few months or some short period of time, I want you to know that if you have any questions or observations about how things are done here at Grace, please feel free to talk to any one of the elders. Any one of us would love to hear your questions or hear your observations or thoughts, and uh, we would love to engage with you and uh, answer your questions as best as we can. So if you are here and you are looking at Grace Bible Church and you have some questions about how things are done, uh, please come see me, come see Eric. Eric will be glad to talk with you as well. See any of the other elders at any time during the service. Um, We'd love to talk with you and hear from you. All right. I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about the disciplines again. So if you have your notebooks, uh, grab your notebook and turn it over. going to remind ourselves today of uh, what it is that we need to do and what is most important in our life and our walk with the Lord. And Obviously, the first and most important thing that we want to put in front of everybody here is how important it is to counsel our own heart with the Word of God. Um, if there's one thing that I, I would love for everybody to come away from at the end of May when we're done with BUILD this year is that it is essential, it is so vitally important that we understand that we shepherd our heart well and we we grow in our understanding of how important it is that we shepherd our heart. And we do that, once again, by meeting consistently with the Lord over His Word and meeting with Him in prayer. We allow Him to talk to us when we read His Word. That is God's design. That is God's method of talking to us and communicating with us. That's how He reveals Himself to us. It's in His Word. And His design for how we communicate back to Him is in prayer. And it is really, really good to develop a dedicated time of prayer where you meet alone with the Lord and you are talking to Him and you're really not doing much else. Um, It allows you to confess, it allows you to thank, it allows you to praise in a deeper level than you could otherwise throughout your day. When a guy has shepherded his heart well, he is ready for the home situation that the Lord has for him. He's ready to engage well with the people that he lives with. Whether he lives alone and has people over who visit, or whether he lives with a family, whether he lives with his parents or his wife or his kids, 
uh, he is ready to be used by the Lord in their lives when he has already cared for his own heart. And when he has done that, he is ready to enter into this church and function and interact well with one another. Whether it's in a formal ministry position, teaching an NGM or leading a small group, or whether it's just like we're doing here this morning and talking with one another and asking how our weeks were going and how our work is going and what the Lord is doing in our lives. Um, we are ready to do that well when we come from a home that's been cared for well, that grows out of a man who's shepherding his own heart well. So I want you guys to keep those three disciplines in front of you at all times. Whenever you encounter a situation in, in your life, uh, the first thing we should be thinking about is our heart and our own heart shepherding and how that works and what benefit and what effect that should have on on the decision or the situation or the issue in front of us. I want to encourage you men to keep looking at the deacon qualifications, what it means to be a man who's well qualified to serve in a deacon role. And the, the idea here is not to aspire to be a deacon, but to aspire to be a man who's qualified to serve as a deacon. And that means that he's a man who is not addicted to much wine, he's not fond of sort of gain, he manages his own house well. Um, those are the things that are present in a man who's ready to be used in the church in some kind of formal capacity. So I would just encourage you guys to keep those in front of you again and again and again. And finally, I want you guys to keep in front of you that we are men who are always on a task. We are always on track with uh, the task of growing and growing and growing in our ability to handle the word. When we read the word, it is really, really essential. It's important that we know how to interpret what's being read before us. So we want men to be diligent about their pursuit of God and pursuit of him through studying his word accurately. And so I um, want you guys to know that here at Grace Bible Church, again, we've set forth several ministries for men and as well as Wellspring for the ladies and some Bible studies that are coming for the ladies that allow us to do that. And so be thinking carefully about the future and opportunities for Growing in your ability to handle the word. I know that I have benefited from being in build and I have benefited from being in um, shepherdology and I've benefited from being in H3, which we now call the trust. And so keep those things in front of you as God's design for us and how to grow in our ability to handle the word. Let's just talk for a minute about our understanding of how to grow our prayer life. In one specific way. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to John 17? This is the high priestly prayer, and it's it's a wonderful chapter. If you have a red letter version of your Bible or a blue letter version, the entire chapter is in that color because the, the whole time Jesus is praying. And he's the setting here is that Jesus is praying just before he is going to go to the cross. And so he prays for five or six verses about himself, and then he prays for the disciples, and then he prays for the church, prays for us. And uh, as he's praying for the church, starting in verse 22, we can see what kind of relationship Jesus had with the Father. Let me just read a couple of verses for you. Uh, Verse 22 and 23. The glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and you love them even as you have loved me. The end of verse 23 tells us that the father has had a love relationship with the son. He's had a strong, close relationship of love with the son. Verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire 
that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. He's speaking about the future in eternity. So that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. The end of verse 24 tells us that this love relationship with the Father and Jesus have together has been one that has been in place for since eternity past. So it's a strong, strong relationship. The reason I bring that up is when we sit down before the Father, we sit down um, in our time of devotion, we're praying and we're thinking about our relationship with the Lord. Um, We want to bear in mind how costly our relationship with the Lord was. What we've seen here is Jesus is praying and he's communicating directly with the Father is that there is a strong love relationship between the two of them. But if we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see what happened to that love relationship for the time that Jesus was on the cross. And the cost that that was incurred by Jesus and the cost that was incurred by the Father while Jesus was on the cross. What that does is that grows us in our appreciation for the Father's love for us and the Son's love for us, that they would enter into a period of relationship with themselves that was very different from what had been in place since all eternity passed. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he is helping them understand how it was that they became righteous people. And he says, He, the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is an exchange that is happening here. It's a perfect exchange. And the exchange is the sin of every believer, even before they were born, the sin of everybody who's in this room, men who've trusted Christ, was transferred onto Jesus during the time that Jesus was on that cross. And because God is one who cannot have relationship with sin, the love relationship that he had enjoyed with Christ since before the foundations of the world came to an end. It changed in its nature. Um, There was still a relationship, but the Father turned away from Christ because Christ was bearing within himself all of our sin. And so it's very important for us to understand that. What also took place during that time was a transfer of, of righteousness that was prepared for us, that was ready for us, that was to be declared into us at the time of our conversion. We see that at the end of the verse. Um, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So there's a sin and a righteousness exchange that's happening here. And I share those things this morning to help us grow in our affections for Christ and for the Father as we enter into um, our time of prayer and our time of study in the word. It's very helpful for us just to remember that the reason why we're there and the whole reason why we're able to enjoy a relationship with God is because for the period of time that Christ was on the cross for us, approximately six hours, um, the relationship that they had enjoyed changed dramatically so that we could enter into fellowship with God. That was all restored when Christ was raised from the dead and was restored and Christ now sits at the right hand of the Father and we enjoy the benefit of that. But if you are one who is wondering, how do I grow in my affections for the Lord as I'm entering into my time of prayer and my time of study in the word, I just consider these two passages and the cost that um, our sin was to Christ and to the Father. And uh, pray through that. And my prayer is that that would assist you in, in your time and your time alone with the Lord. All right. And uh, I'll let Ben take it away. Thanks, Scott. And let me start off, you know, it's a 
it's just a privilege to be able to be here with you guys. About uh, before we came to Arizona, Melissa and I moved to Arizona. We were at a uh, at a church that had solid teaching, um, and I got to go to a Christian college and sit in many many Bible classes where I was exhorted to truth and a really, just really a solid teaching of that truth. And so I was not. Um, starving for lack of biblical knowledge, uh, biblical training. And when I moved here 10 years ago and sat in build for the first time, what was exposed was, you know, I, I may have thought I had my theology sorted out. I may have thought I knew God's word, but man, I was just dumbfounded by the reality that so much of what I had learned, not because of the church and the school I was at, but because of my own fault, had not impacted my heart. And I've just been so thankful over the years for Build and the, this ministry that you guys have a chance to be here. And I'm encouraged that you are here uh, just because of the emphasis that it has upon the heart. And you know, we, we, are, we can be men who can come so close to God's word, but when it doesn't impact our heart, there's no profit to us. And so I just have been appreciative of this ministry and excited to go to open God's word to you. Um, in your resources section, if you have a resources tab or maybe it's on a D1 tab, you should have something maybe after your Bible reading plans. And it just have, your, yours might look a little different, but it just says D1, the heart. And what it is, if you want to take a look at that, you can. It just kind of gives an overview of how many times the word heart appears in your English Bibles in the New American Standard. And um, what we're going to be looking at today is Proverbs. If you can look at that, the word the book of Proverbs mentions the word heart 69 times, uh, the second most in your Bibles. Uh, the book of Psalms has 126 times, the book of Proverbs 69. Um, I think without doing the math on all of them, I think chapter for chapter, the book of Proverbs has mentions the word heart more often than any other book of your Bible. Uh, it's more than an average of three times per chapter, and so that's what, one of the things we're going to be doing today is looking at what book of Proverbs has to say about our heart, and we'll be looking at at least 10 of those 69 occurrences, maybe maybe 12, some of the verses I added. But before we do that, just a couple words about the book of Proverbs, and this is the book that you're really going to benefit from by working through it on a regular basis. Uh, some different things you could do with the book of Proverbs are, you can, you can look, for the, look for themes in the book of Proverbs, uh, different issues that it addresses. And, you know, read through the book of Proverbs in a, in a month. Uh, you know, 31 chapters. The, book, the reading plan that I've been on the last few years has me reading through the book of Proverbs once a month, one chapter a day. And it's really helpful. I can pick a theme like the fear of God and just tra- trace that, write those in the margins as I go through that. The next month, pick a different topic. You know, maybe anger uh, or parenting. Or for men, it's really looked, helpful to look at work. You know, what, how, how are we diligent, diligently working when we were employers? So just some helpful things. Um, and something about the book of Proverbs, if you, were, if you were there in church this past Sunday, Proverbs, as Smedley was preaching about Ecclesiastes, um, in light of the book of Proverbs, some of the truths in Ecclesiastes can seem shocking, jarring. Um, Proverbs, it's really important that we understand the book of Proverbs and how Proverbs work. Right, they're general principles that are that generally hold true, and they help us see what wise living looks like. But as we saw in Ecclesiastes, wise living can be overruled by God's sovereignty. It can be overturned by the sinfulness of man. And while some Proverbs do contain some clear propositional truth statements, 
Uh, many Proverbs don't necessarily hold true in every circumstance. So Proverbs isn't necessarily a book of promises, but a book of general truisms. And we need to kind of understand the book of Proverbs alongside the rest of our wisdom literature. Uh, the book of Job, the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, we might, otherwise, we might be tempted to, as we read through Job and Ecclesiastes, we might say, see, the evil man does not get what he deserves. And so how can I trust the book of Proverbs? Um, but so we need to under, understand that Proverbs is a, list, a book of things that are generally true. This is generally how the sowing and reaping principle works in the word in the world. But God's sovereignty and man's sin sometimes frustrate that. And books such as Job and Ecclesiastes help us kind of understand when things don't look exactly the way we see them on the pages of the book of Proverbs. So it's helpful just to understand them together. And I would recommend, if you weren't there this past Sunday, go back and listen to at least the first 15, 20 minutes of last week's sermon. And Smedley, I think, covers that section, that, that topic really helpfully. And so with that, let's go ahead and pray before we jump into Proverbs this morning. Father, thank you for your wisdom that you have recorded for us in your word. And thank you that your son became wisdom for us. Um, and what would our wisdom be with, without your word? Lord, it would be lies. Um, it would help us today to, to submit under the wisdom found in your word. And that we would um, today see these truths about our heart and that we would be, um, you would work a change in our hearts. That we might love you more and serve you more faithfully. Amen. So what we're going to look at today, is, like we mentioned, is, is what does the book of Proverbs say about our hearts? And we're going to put that in the form of four questions to ask ourselves. And so the first question there on your page, uh, God's wise assessment of the heart should lead the believer to ask question one, do I value God's assessment of my heart more than my own assessment of my heart? So whose assessment do you value most? Do you value what you see about your own heart and your own wisdom or do you value more what God says about your heart? The first verse we're going to look at, it's there on your page, printed for you, is Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. Uh, Proverbs 29 is the form of rhetorical question. Um, and it assumes a very specific answer. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from sin? Now, what's the, what is the implied answer? Right. No one, right, no one. The truth behind this is that nobody can say that they have cleansed their heart and that they are pure from sin. You know, this is a statement by a wise Old Testament believer advising his son that no one can claim in any given situation that they can have total or complete purity of their motive, of their heart, right? Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? The heart, the inner man, always has some form of corruption in it due to sin. And that's just the way it is. And this is what we discussed when we looked at that foldable diagram, you know, on the different states of man. The heart always has some corruption in it due to sin, and that's the mixed condition. That's what the mixed condition reveals about the heart. 
for the believer. So the believer in Christ is in a mixed condition. And so let's talk about what that mixed condition again means as a way of reminder. And what it doesn't mean. So this is, this is what it doesn't mean. If I am to say that, that I have a, a mixed condition or a mixed heart, what I don't mean is that on Sunday and Tuesday and Thursday of last week, I had good motives, and right motives, but on Monday and what other days were left Saturday, I had evil motives. And so that's why I had a, I was, I had a mixed heart, because on some days it was a, it was, there were good motives, some days it was bad motives. No, what we mean is that on each and every day, in every thought, in every action, in every desire, that our hearts are mixed, that there is some sin that impacts every one of those thoughts and desires. And that's what we mean by, by the mixed condition. And the Word of God reveals that your thoughts, your words, your attitudes, your deeds, all of them are affected by sin. Now, the one that is in Christ has the ability to be influenced by truth and by good desires that are pleasing to the Lord, right? As well as the same time to be influenced by the flesh and sin. So you, you can't look back at your life and say, you know, this is something that I was doing and my motives were completely pure in doing that, <clears throat> We don't have the ability to look back and, and say, you know, I had pure motives in that situation. You know, who can say I've cleansed my heart? I am pure from sin. You know, we don't have the ability to make that assessment. And so this might be shocking. Um, and we can really get bent out of shape when someone questions our motives. But guess what? Our motives often need to be questioned. Um, and first and foremost, by ourselves. Uh, as we enter into conversations with others, we need to be aware that our thoughts and our desires are not necessarily pure. And we're not pure. We're, we're mixed. And this isn't to say that you can't think right thoughts. right? We, we can. We can have right thoughts. We can read God's word and we can think God's thoughts after him. But in terms of what we say and what we choose and how we are motivated... You know, we need to be careful about what we say. So l- let me give you an example. Go over to the New Testament. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I think Paul illustrates this for us. 1 Corinthians 4, 4. And Paul says it in this way. Paul is being scrutinized by the Corinthian church. For I am conscious of nothing against myself. In other words, he had examined himself and wasn't aware of anything impure. But notice what he says. Yet I am not by this acquitted. So what, what is he admitting? You know, I can't see impurity in this action of mine, in my motives, but... That doesn't mean I'm guiltless. Uh, verse 4 continues, But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore do not go passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts 
and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So there's things going on, Paul says, in the motive and in the heart that we might be trying to get to the bottom of and we just can't get to it. There are hidden motives that we can't necessarily see within our own hearts. And just because we can't see them doesn't mean they're not there. Uh, let's go to, to look at this a little further. And I, and I do want to recognize at the outset that our time together will be more heavily weighted on point number one than the rest of them. Um, so go to James 1, verse 26. And an example of how we should be thinking and about how we should allow Scripture to help us rightly think in regards to purity of motives and the purity of the heart. James 1.26 says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. So it's possible to be deceived at the heart level. Um, that's, that's a mixed condition. Nobody in heaven is ever deceived by their heart. But we are, and we can be. Look down a little further to James 2.4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Have you ever thought that it's actually possible to have evil motives as a believer? Um, this is still... Under discussion in James 3, verse 9, Paul, James is now moved to discussing the tongue. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. Now what's that? Right? That's, that's a mixed mouth. Right? My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. And notice in this passage, James includes himself in this when he says, we curse men. And notice how he addresses his readers, my brethren, my brothers. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to the church. He's talking to this group of Jewish believers that have been scattered. Does a fountain send out from the same opening, both fresh and bitter water, can a fig tree, my brethren, notice my brethren, produce olives or vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh. It's possible for the believer's mouth to speak good things and to speak evil. And where does a mixed mouth come from? You know, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth speaks both good and evil because inside the heart of even a believer, there is both good and there is evil present in the hearts of a believer. And there can be. And so a mixed mouth flows out of the mixed heart, but it's not a mouth problem, it's a heart problem. Evil can be in the heart of a believer. If you think back to your homework from, I guess, four weeks ago, we looked at Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brethren that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. There, it's possible for roots of unbelief and evil to be inside the heart of one who is professing and one who actually knows the Lord. So do I value God's assessment of my own heart more than my own assessment? We are in an infinitely 
better condition now than we were before we came to Christ, right? Right before there was nothing that was in our heart that was pure ever before. There was no motive that was ever honoring to Jesus Christ before God saved us. Even the good things that we might have done in feeding our children, um, as unbelievers, it was a Jesusless motive. And even though it was good, it didn't bring glory to Christ because Jesus was not at the center of it. But that's what we used to be. Um, but now, now, there is actually a possibility of good things and good motives. But to be able to claim at any time that this heart of mine is completely free and completely pure of any impurity in my thoughts, in my motives, is, is a dangerous one to make. Um, this lesson was actually put together by... Uh, Scott Maxwell put this lesson together a few years ago after a conversation that the elders had with somebody that essentially said, you can't question me on this because my motives are pure. Okay, that, and that person's kind of pulled the trump card on you. Okay, you can't question him. His motives are pure. Um, you know, my motives are pure. Are you judging my heart? You know, this man claimed he had a, he had a new heart. But we need to understand more clearly you know, what we mean by that. And again, we're not saying that you can't think right thoughts. Um, we can. We, we can have good desires in Jesus Christ. And by His grace, by His work in His life, we can. But we need to be careful to, to say that in any decision that this only came from a pure motive, uh, that's, that's to mix, misunderstand the mixed condition. And so what should we say in response? What should we do in response? We need to have an appropriate suspicion of our hearts. An appropriate suspicion of our hearts. Uh, because of this very wisdom from God concerning our hearts. You know, who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from sin? No one. And I think we tend to gravitate towards one or two extremes in this area. Some people will never, ever, ever find anything good in their at any moment, at any place in our hearts. They're always going to be questioning to an unhelpful degree all of their motives. Right? We can do that. There's never anything good in me, you know, worm that I am. No, that man should be encouraged. You know, that man should be encouraged with verses such as Romans 15, 14. You can write that down. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourself are full of goodness with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. Now you've been filled in Christ with goodness that makes you able to care for others in the body of Christ. It's not about self-esteem, but it's about recognizing that God has placed inside of a, a clay vessel something that is good. And you do have something to contribute in the body of Christ with what God has accomplished in you. And if you want to avoid that extreme of thinking that there's never anything good in this motive of mine, or there's never ever anything good in this motive of this man who's sitting across the table from me. You want to avoid that extreme. But what's the other extreme? The other extreme is to always be prone to say that my motives are pure. And don't question my motives. You know, that man doesn't even question his own motives, let alone allow someone else to question them. 
And we want to avoid that extreme because that person is trusting in their own assessment of their heart. They've looked at their heart and say, I'm, I'm clear, I'm acquitted, I'm pure. And they trusted their own assessment rather than God's assessment. So you want to be influenced by truth to kind of navigate, navigate between those two extremes. You want to say, as Paul says, as far as I can tell, I can't see what the impurity of the motive is. But that doesn't mean that I don't have it. In fact, I'm going to open up God's word to get God's word so that I might see what I can't see on my own, what I might be blinded to. And that's the reality of our hearts, that there is hidden things in our heart that we might be blind to. Well, let's move on to the, the next verse there. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but Yahweh weighs the hearts. That was Proverbs 21 too. Now, don't you know what this feels like? You know, how many times have you made a decision in your mind and you're telling someone else about it, how you made your decision, the research you did, the planning, and you're convinced this was a wise decision. This, my decision making was flawless here. I mean, we've got the first part of this verse down. Yep. Our ways are right in our own eyes. I don't do something because I think it's wrong. I do it because I think it's the right thing to do, generally. Sometimes I know something is sin, right? We can be deceived by that. But in general, I make a decision because I think that's the proper thing to do. And sometimes it just seems absolutely impossible that this path that we have, we have placed ourselves on is not right. But your, in this case, your, your self-assessment was at the extreme, and we can be far too easily impressed with our own abilities to choose the right path or to make the appropriate choice to take the right action. So look at this verse, Proverbs 21.2. And what is it in this passage that our eyes are actually looking at in the first part of verse 2? Right, It's the way. Every man's way or his path is right in his own eyes. So here's a man, he has his eyes, and he's looking at, he's considering his way, his path, his actions, his decisions. And in examining and looking at his own way, it's right in his eyes. And that's what our default, our heart is, is, is inclined to always think rightly and good about the decisions and paths that we've been walking down. Our eyes look at what we're doing and how we're going along, but what is it that Yahweh is wearing, is weighing our hearts? Our hearts are being weighed by God, and that's the inner you, the inner me, what's going on on the inside, the the hidden things that we can't see. God is looking at the inner man throughout our decision-making process, and his sight is far more trustworthy than our own sight and what our eyes look at and how we assess our way our path and so it's easy for us to become unacquainted with our hearts throughout the day and to forget that all the evil machinations that may be occurring within our heart at any given moment and to not be aware of them but God is always weighing the heart and we need to value his assessment of us you know like I'm only ever going to acquit my own heart um, but God's assessment of it will be trustworthy Let's look at the next passage, Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely 
will be delivered. So what is it that trusting your own heart is being contrasted with in this verse? Take a look. Trusting your own heart is actually being contrasted in this verse with walking wisely. There's a contrast between trusting your own heart on one hand or walking wisely on the other hand. And it's important to note, Solomon's not just merely making a contrast between a believer and an unbeliever here. Um, Solomon isn't saying the unbeliever trusts in his own heart and the believer is the one that walks wisely. No, he's contrasting trusting your own heart with wise living. And trusting your own heart then is not walking wisely, rather it's walking in the way of the fool. And that can happen in the life of a believer as... We've looked through these passages in some of the New Testament. So, so take a look at this passage and ask yourself, what does this proverb imply about the outcome for you if you do not, I mean, if you do trust in your own heart? So if you trust in your own heart, what does this proverb imply about the likely outcome? This proverb says, he who walks wisely will be delivered. So what's the opposite of that? He who trusts in his own heart will not be delivered. He's going to be trapped. He's going to be in need of deliverance. So trusting your own heart can actually lead to a form of, of an entrapment where you are in need of deliverance. You're, the fact that you have trusted in your own heart may place yourself, may put you in a situation where you are in need of some form of deliverance. You've been trapped by your own trust in your own heart. And our our hearts are capable of good, but they're also capable of deception. Remember we read in Hebrews, don't be, be, to be aware of the evil, unbelieving heart that can can deceive you. You know, the heart is deceptive, and it's, while it is capable of good, it's also capable of deception. And trusting it is going to lead, and it can lead to us being trapped by it. We've been trapped by our own foolishness when we trusted our own hearts. And so here's another question, and this is uh, maybe more of a caution. As, as we talked about the, just the nature of Proverbs, and these are things that are generally true, but in a given situation we may not see this um, necessarily played out in every situation in our life. And so do the results always reveal the heart condition? Let me, let me ask it another way. Does walking wisely always guarantee deliverance? No, we need to be careful that we don't take a passage like this and think, you know what, I experience good results. So God has appeared to bless that decision. And so my heart must have been pure. Uh, or to look at someone else and see how God is, on the outside, appearing to bless them uh, and assume that they must be doing something right that's pleasing to the Lord. Remember, um, Proverbs is generally true, but they don't describe the way things are exactly during every single time during the course of our lives without exception. Um, it's generally true that if you humble yourself, God is going to lift you up. It's in Proverbs. 
But there are times when Job, think back, was humbled, and he didn't get lifted up for a long, long time. His deliverance was not immediate. So don't simply look to your results to evaluate or even to justify trusting your own heart. Um, and that's and that's that's foolish. Proverbs twenty eight twenty six says to trust your own heart is foolishness. With that we turn to a very very familiar verse. And how many of you had to memorize Proverbs three five and six growing up? Anybody? Jeff and I. Uh, we'll read it. I'll read it together. And this is if if you did memorize this or familiar familiar as a child. I think I learned it in a different translation. Trust in Yahweh. With all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And here's just the clear positive command concerning your inner man as a believer. You know, gather up all that you are inwardly, your whole heart, all of your heart before God and trust in Yahweh. Um, the way I, I memorized um, this verse as a, as a child was, and he will direct thy paths. Ever, anybody know this verse in that version? Uh, that's a way that it was very commonly translated. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths or thy paths, I think in King James. Uh, NASB translate this, he will make your path straight. Uh, that Hebrew verb is probably best translated as, to make straight rather than to direct. Um, and so really what I think what's going on in this particular passage is that, and it is it's generally true, that God will make your path straight. That is, as you move outward from yourself to the path that you have chosen from your heart and you acknowledge God as you walk. Um, Solomon intends to to make it clear for the Old Testament believer that there should always be this looking away from yourself to acknowledge God at the heart level in any given moment. Um, So the idea, as somebody is walking along their path, their way, is that Yahweh is actually going out ahead and smoothing out the path. He's making it straight ahead of you. He's removing um, obstacles that might otherwise have hindered you had you trusted in yourself and in your own heart. And his own, his own understanding, when we trust in our own understanding, as we continue down the path, the, the picture is that there are going to be obstacles that are not going to be removed from our past and that are going to be a hindrance to us. Uh, and so that this, this is generally what we'd expect as we go through life. When we trust in our own hearts, when we trust in our own understanding, we lean on our own understanding, we go about life decision-making without an acknowledgement of God, we are setting ourselves up for obstacles in the future. For the one who trusts in Yahweh, acknowledges Him in all His ways, the, the, generally what you will see is that God is actually going to make your paths straighter. He's going... There's going to be obstacles that you may not experience because the fact that you've trusted in Yahweh and not in your own understanding. You know, again, every situation may not look like this, but these things are, are what generally is going to be true. We, there is a, a principle of sowing and reaping when we trust in our own understanding 
that we are setting ourselves up for pitfalls and a more a rocky path in the future. And, and that's what's, I think, in, in mind in, in this particular verse. So we need to be careful of our own assessment of our hearts. So we also need to trust God's assessment of our hearts. And so what has he given us to assess our heart? You know, how about Hebrews 4.12? How can you judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart? How can you assess them rightly? Well, what has God given us? Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of heart or soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You want to address your own heart, you lay it before God's word, which is able to decipher the thoughts and intentions that are inside of it. Those thoughts and intentions that are hidden to us, God's word can reveal and it can expose. So it's important for us to measure our own heart, but not so that we would trust in our own hearts, but so that we would look away from it and trust in Yahweh. So four questions from Proverbs. Number one, do I value God's assessment of my own heart more than the assessment of my own? Number two, am I more inclined to carefully control my heart or blindly follow my heart? And we have, on the papers in front of you, we have three Proverbs for you. Proverbs 6.25, 7.25, and 23.17. And we'll look at these um, three kind of together. So notice these three commands. Maybe but you just, just look on your paper in front of you. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with eyelids. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Proverbs 23, 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of Yahweh always. All of these sins all begin at the heart level, with what the heart was going after first, before the actions followed. So Solomon's clear expectation for his son, who he's instructing in the, here, is that his son would control his inner man. That he would control his own heart. That he would shepherd it. Um, Control yourself. So in in what sense do you need to control yourself? Don't desire her her beauty in your heart. That's on you, son. Don't do it. Don't desire her beauty. Don't let her heart, your heart, turn aside to your ways. Don't look over there. Control it. And do not let your heart envy sinners. So what do these verses imply about our hearts? You know, it implies, as Solomon gave his, his son instruction and warning about the heart, and not following it into these sins, it's implying that the believer's heart is wayward, and it needs to be carefully watched over. It's, it's prone to wander. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the old hymn. I grew up in a church. We sing a lot of hymns. I know we don't sing a whole, as many here. We do sing some. Pro, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That hymn ring a bell. Doesn't that ring true in your heart when you hear it? 
Um, you know by experience that your heart is prone to wander. And our hearts are wayward. Um, but guess what? Guess what, son? Solomon said, your job is to control it. You're responsible when it's out of control. You're accountable to keep your heart under control. Uh, you are to control your inner man. That's uh, the reason for the command in Proverbs 4.23. It's not on your paper. You can write it down. It's a verse that we've already discussed multiple times this year. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And let, if you go ahead, write this one down. I should have added this one to the paper. Proverbs 23.19. I think this is a helpful proverb. Listen, my son... And be wise. And direct your heart in the way. Um, there's, there's Old Testament wisdom for your heart. Watch over your heart. Shepherd your heart. Direct it. There is a way that is right. And you need to direct your heart to that way. You need to, to redirect the directions that your heart would naturally be inclined to follow. You need to control it. So if, you, if that is your heart, and it's waywardness, and you're blindly following the commands that come out of your heart. You might do some. You might do some good things, um, but you might lead yourself astray, as well as experience some significant consequences. And you need to control your heart and not let it control you. And that means, as Proverbs twenty three ten states, it needs to be directed. It needs directing and controlling. So, are you more inclined to carefully control your heart? Or blindly follow your heart. And remember what we looked at in Proverbs 28, 26. He who trusts his own heart is a fuel. It's a fool. Uh, here's one more passage in this section. Uh, and it's not written down. You can write this one down too. Proverbs 25, 28. Like a city that is broken into... And without walls, so is a man who has no control over his spirit. Just as a city that has no walls is extremely susceptible to being besieged, to being stolen from, for enemies breaking in and, and destroying the town, the city, so are you equally as vulnerable to temptation when you have no control over your inner man, over your spirit, over your heart, like a city that is broken into and without walls, so is a man who has no control over his spirit. Um, we are vulnerable to temptation when we are not controlling our hearts, our spirits, our inner man, what, what, is, what we are on the inside. Well, we'll move on to number three. Do I know in what ways my heart is vulnerable? To be effective in watching over, over our hearts, we need to be aware of our heart's weaknesses. You know, how is our heart vulnerable? Um, where is it susceptible to temptation? In what ways is it like that city without walls? Um, and so here are two Proverbs that show ways that the heart can be weakened, how the heart can be brought down, how the heart can be made sick. Situations and vulnerabilities that ha can have an impact, a negative impact upon our own hearts. First one is Proverbs twelve twenty five. 
Engz, and I'll give you a second to turn there. Oh, that's right. It's on your page. It's on your page burn in front of you, right? Anxiety in a man's heart weigh it down, but a good word makes it glad. So, do you know the ways in which your heart is vulnerable? Um, so, in this passage, what what impact does the the sin of anxiety? Let me say it again: the sin of anxiety or worry have on your heart. It sinks. You know, it's like a stone that can be weighed down under the weight of sin. Um, one helpful commentator said, the heart can sink to depths of despair where it can no longer apprehend gospel comforts. Where it can no longer offer thanks to God. Has your own heart ever felt like this? Um, let's talk for a Second, about anxiety. You know, what is anxiety? And, you know, we live in a day where well, if someone has anxiety, you prescribe medication for them. You know, so what is it? Why is it a sin? Um, when we're anxious, we are trusting more in ourselves than in the Lord. And let me say that again. When we're anxious, we are trusting more in ourselves than in the Lord. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look at our passage again. But let's read the second part of the passage first. A good word makes the heart glad. Um, and, and, and I don't think it goes without saying here, a good word is necessarily going to be a truthful word. A word that's not truthful is not good in any sense. When we remind ourselves about truth, and the gospel, and what's true about God, God's wisdom, God's control over all things, His knowledge. We remind ourselves that this situation is not outside of God's control. Um, this isn't unknown to God. Right? In that situation, there is no reason to have true anxiety over a situation. We are, we are trusting in God. But we often might find ourselves in a situation... Uh, in which we begin to become anxious. We're actually doubting those things that are true, those things that we know to be true. We might be, we're doubting God's goodness. We may be doubting his wisdom, his care, his sovereignty. And I'll say it this way, we're actually responding in unbelief to his promises. We're not trusting what he has promised and one of the things he has promised is to work all things for the good of those who love him. So instead of trusting in God, we actually become convinced that it's up to us to find a way out of a, of a situation that's difficult. You know, and, right, and we're all aware that some situations are really, really difficult. And they test us and they try and they exhaust the resources that we have in ourselves. And we may very quickly realize, you know what, we're in way over our head. I'm tr- I, I can't see a way out of the situation. And while we're attempting to seize control over that situation, because we have not trusted what we know to be true about God and the gospel, his promises, his goodness, his sovereignty, at the same time, we're aware 
that we may have a limited means and a capacity in ourselves to actually endure a situation. Right? And, that, and that can lead us to despair, a, a weighed down soul. And so how is your heart vulnerable? Um, when your heart's not bolstered by the truth of who God is and what he's revealed in his word, your heart is vulnerable. When you're in a difficult situation that can test your limits, your heart is vulnerable. Um, anxiety is a heart shepherding moment. Can I trust in Yahweh in the midst of the situation? You know, we sin because we lean on our own understanding. Um, we're not acknowledging Him in all our ways, as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says. We're certainly not acknowledging His sovereignty, His goodness, His control. His... And so when we're anxious, we're actually contending with God for sovereignty in our lives. Um, we tend to think in our culture of, of anxiety as a personality trait rather than a sin of the heart. Man, anxiety is not the opposite of optimism. No, I think we can think that. You know, that on one hand, there's someone who's just really optimistic, and here on this side, there's someone who's just pessimistic. They're worried. It, Rather, anxiety is a symptom of pride, of discontentment, of a lack of trust in who God is and what he has said. And it's a sign of unbelief in our hearts. And we can all be there. And we know and we should be aware that this in our hearts, um, anxiety in our hearts is is weighs it down and we're susceptible to, to anxiety because we are susceptible to trust in our own understanding, to lean in our own understanding, to trust our own assessment of our hearts and to not control it. Um, What's the good news, though, is look how easily encouraged the anxious heart can be. Your heart may be sinking to depths where the gospel just seems unbelievable. Your hope seems to have vanished. But notice how the verse ends. Anxiety in a man's heart weights it down, but a good word makes it glad. Whether that good word is God's word or an encouraging word from a friend that is grounded in truth, the truth of God's word, our hearts can be encouraged. There's hope. The heart can find hope in a good word spoken from truth. So don't underestimate the effectiveness of truth and encouragement from God's word and from within the body of Christ helping a wayward sin or wayward heart turn from sinful anxiety. The next passage there in front of you is hope deferred. It's Proverbs 13, 12. It's on your paper. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Um, the word for hope here is translated in basically in two main ways in the Old Testament. The first way is it's translated as hope. And the other way it's translated is expectation. And really those, those two are very synonymous. And this is consistent with how the word hope is used in the New Testament. 
So hope is not something that you're wishing for. You know, I hope to win the lottery. Instead, hope is something that you expect. It's an expectation that you have full assurance and confidence that it's going to come to pass. It's an indication that you have placed your trust in a future reality. You're confident of it. And so for a believer, our hope, our expectation, our confidence, our assurance is in the Lord. And there's no uncertainty about that. And that's why for the believer, when you look at biblical hope for the believer, it's always something that is only ever an encouragement in the New Testament. Hope is something that is an encouragement because it's an encouraging confidence in the future. But it is actually possible to place your hope in the wrong place. To place your trust, your confidence, have a full expectation of something coming about, but it's misplaced. And that's what's, that's what's in view in this passage here. Proverbs 13, 12 pictures a hope that is placed in something other than the Lord. Notice the effects of hope here. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope for the believer that's placed rightly in Yahweh is actually an encouragement to the heart, not something that sickens the heart. So what's in view here is not hope in Yahweh, but it's hope in something other than the Lord. And this is like a, a carrot that's been placed on a stick. You have a hope, an expectation of, of achieving something, a confidence in, a trust in something in the future. And this carrot is dangling right in front of you. And you take some steps towards it. And just as you're getting close, it's pulled off. It's put, made a little further away. And just as you're getting close, it takes another step back. And you never get to that dangling carrot in front of you. you know, your hope has been deferred. You, you've never actually realize what you've been placing your hope in. It's been nothing but disappointment. And what does it do? It actually makes the heart sick. It's disheartening. And so as believers who are trying to identify in what ways our hearts are vulnerable, our hearts are vulnerable to what we put our hopes and our pursuits and our passions what we put our hope in. If we have placed our hope in the wrong things and they fall through what's going to happen to our hearts they're going to be affected I mean do you really think there's no spiritual impact if you have placed your hope in something other than the Lord and there, there is going to be an impact and our hearts are vulnerable to placing our, our heart our hearts are vulnerable to placing our hope in something other than the Lord and our hearts are prone to sickness and distress when our hopes are frustrated. So we need to be watchful over our hearts and aware of this vulnerability inside of us. And as those of us who have children, we also need to be aware and watchful of, of this with our children's hearts. Have you, have you ever said, yeah, yeah, we'll do that tomorrow. Right? And then you forget about it the moment it comes out of your mouth. But your children will remind you, Dad, you said this, you said we are going to do this today. And when you made that promise, they didn't have any expectation that you weren't going to follow through. They put, your, put their trust, maybe foolishly, in Dad's words. 
And this is not going to have a positive impact upon their hearts when that hope does not come to reality. And so we need to be careful with what we're seeing, what we say we're going to do, and that we do it. And as a parent, this can have an impact upon our children's hearts without us even thinking about it. Our hearts are both vulnerable to place our hope in something other than the Lord, and our children can do it with what we have said, and our hearts are also vulnerable to despair and sickness when hope that we have placed it in. Because let's face it, there are going to be times that each and every one of us are going to place our hope in something that we ought not to. And it's going to, when that ultimately disappoints, our hearts are going to be brought down and weighed down and sickened. And what about, what about your wife? Same way we talk about the home, our children, our wives... My wife might ask me, you know, can you take the trash out and bring the laundry upstairs? Yes, of course. Of course I'll do that. You know, and when that never happens, what is your wife's heart going to be naturally inclined towards? You know, hopefully she hasn't put all of her hope and trust in you taking out the, the garbage, but just understanding how this reacts even with just things that we strongly desire, maybe in an inordinate way, and depend upon. You know, she's going to be disheartened. When I don't do that. Honey, you know I'm going to fix that broken sink. You don't need to remind me about it every year, right? (laughs) When we say that we're going to do something, and we don't do it, those relationships around us are prone to the same vulnerability as ours are. So when we put our hope in the wrong things, we are destined for disappointment when those things don't happen. But notice the opposite. In this passage, desire fulfilled is like a tree of life. Just like our hearts can be devastated when we put our hope in something that is not fulfilled, when our heart has been placed in the right place, in the Lord, those desires will actually be realized. Um, and this may not be in our lifetime, right? This, this may be ultimately in eternity. But it will be a tree of life to our souls. The imagery here is of the garden, a tree that is, you know, that is, is life-giving. And so, without spending more time on that passage, these are just two proverbs that reveal ways in which our heart is vulnerable. Anxiety and deferred hope. And so, as you look at and try to be a student of your own heart, do you know the ways in which your inner man before God is actually vulnerable? Number four, look to the last truth from Proverbs about our heart. When I am in trouble, do I ever back up and consider my heart? Proverbs 18.12 says, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. That's prideful, arrogant, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. And let's remember what we said earlier. These are generalizations that are generally true in life. They're not true in every situation, every single time. That's the way Proverbs work. So if you come upon destruction in someone's life, a life that is undone spiritually, or perhaps a ministry that is undone spiritually, a relationship that's been undone, that's unraveling, the presence of that kind of destruction is an opportunity to stop 
and evaluate the influence that pride or haughtiness here in this passage or arrogance possibly had. Evaluate the the impact, the influence that pride possibly had in that situation. That it possibly had in bringing about that destruction because before destruction, the heart of man is prideful. Um, George Lawson says, proud men are always standing on the edge of a fearful precipice from whence they will soon tumble into destruction. And we'll, we'll come back to this verse a little bit after we read this next one. Proverbs 28, 14. How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Right? The presence of calamity is an opportunity to evaluate the hardness or the softness of our own hearts. So, if you find yourself in calamity, destruction, you know, what was the condition of my heart prior to this calamity? You're sitting across from someone whose life seems to be unraveling. Help them to, see, to assess where was their heart before this happened. But you need to remember that just because you're in the midst of destruction, a relationship that's in trouble, it may not automatically mean that arrogance or hardness of heart was there. And what is the example in Scripture of a man who was not in sin, but his life was just one big calamity? Right? Job. The writer of Job is actually careful to tell us that Job, especially early on, did not sin. And his heart seemed to be only soft. And yet he was experienced calamity. Um, but the heart may be hard too. So, Notice in this verse, notice what is being contrasted in this verse. He who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. That is being contrasted with fearing always. In the context of Proverbs, fearing Yahweh, or fearing always refers to the fear of the Lord, fearing Yahweh. Um, the one who is talking in wisdom. Um, and I think, and you've, you've probably heard Scott Maxwell use a, use a helpful illustration when talking about hardness of heart. Uh, one example, he says, if you wanted to plant a garden and you came across some very hard ground, you wouldn't take a shovel or hand shovel, right? You'd probably grab a pickaxe. If you're here in Arizona, you get a little gardening shovel, you're not going to go dig in that ground. You need to have an appropriate tool that's going to help you dig up this hard Arizona clay. And why does, you may find yourself in a situation where somebody is addressing your sin. We looked last week at 1 Thessalonians 5, maybe some, or a couple weeks ago, somebody is admonishing you. And you might think, why does this person seem to be swinging at me with a pickaxe? Evaluate your heart. You know, maybe your heart's not very penetrable at that moment. Um, the existence of, of trouble, of calamity, of, of unraveling in, in the circumstance in which you find yourself is an opportunity to back up and to evaluate the condition that your heart was in prior to trouble. So let's, let's think discipleship. 
Let's think Christian friendship. Suppose you come upon a believing friend's life and you know, it just appears devastated for some reason. What should you do? Well, first, enter into their distress and, and their care and try and cry with them. Sympathize with them who understands that trouble is commonplace for us. Help them understand that they're not alone in this. They're living in a world that is broken, that's full of rebellion and good, and, and you understand that, and weep with those who weep. And this is you know, what Job's friends initially did, right? But then second, after you've, you've, you've weeped with that person, you've, you've listened to that person, help them think carefully about the existence of calamity. Calamity doesn't necessarily always mean that the believer was foolish. Um, and it doesn't automatically mean they're being disciplined by God. Right? Remember Job. But nevertheless, as a good, gentle brother, help them to back up and evaluate their thinking. Help them to evaluate their inner man prior to this calamity. Because what Proverbs says is before destruction, the heart of man is prideful. And he who hardens his way will fall into calamity. In this world, in this broken world, it is generally true that the hard heart, the heart that's trusting in itself, is going to reap the consequences of calamity and destruction. Not always, but it's helpful when, we're, when we see that to back up and assess, is, what was my heart like before this? Um, you know, what happens if you come to that devastated person who is actually in a calamity, not because of arrogance, not because of hardness of heart, not because of trusting in their own heart, but if you come in right away and you make an accusation, you might really miss the mark, right? Remember we saw in 1 Thessalonians 5, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Um, You might actually be admonishing somebody that needs encouragement, right? So remember we said about the book of Proverbs, don't come in swinging because you see calamity in a life and immediately assume it came out of a hard heart. But if you find yourself in the midst of calamity, step back and consider where has your heart been? Where have you been trusting? Has your heart been soft? Has it been teachable? Or has it been hard and prideful and trusting in itself? And so what we've been looking at today are four questions for you to ask yourself on a regular basis about your heart from the book of Proverbs. Number one, do I value God's assessment of my heart more than my own assessment of my heart? Number two, am I more inclined to carefully control my heart or blindly follow it? Number three, do I know in what ways my heart is vulnerable, what makes it sink, lose sight of God, what makes it sick? And when trouble comes, will I back up and measure the condition of my heart? And let's go ahead and pray together. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity just to look at our hearts from the book of Proverbs. And I pray that you would give us the proper balance of truth, the proper balance that truth will bring to our lives. And we pray that you would work, your word would keep us from extremes, you know, I pray for men who might be suspicious of their hearts in just an unhelpful way that are not pleasing to you. 
by not acknowledging the good that you have brought about in us. But I also would pray that you would help those men can keep them from a lack of suspicion where we are convinced that there's nothing wrong in our motives and hearts. But help us to be properly weighed by your truth. Help us not to trust in our own hearts, to lean on our own understanding, but instead we would be marked by the trait of always looking away from ourselves and to you, and to your word, and trusting in you with all of our heart. Lord, what an impact that would have for us men, in our families, in our work. You know, we live in a world that we are taught to trust in our own hearts. Lord, to fulfill every desire, to follow our hearts, but Lord, your word has painted a different path. Lord, I pray for us that we would be men who would trust in your word, and as we go out into this world, as we begin to interact with unbelievers who may even now beginning to feel the bitter sting of what trusting in their own hearts actually means and the consequences of it, Lord, may we be prepared to step in and bring the truth of the gospel to them. May we be a light in this world. Lord, help us to walk in wisdom that you've laid out in your word. Amen. Thank you. And I just pray for you guys, you guys work on the homework for next week that these uh, just think that back up and think of what these truths might imply for how you walk and how you and how, do, you, do you trust in your own understanding or are you trusting in God's assessment of your heart thank you men have a good week